Welcome to the Axis Effect podcast, where you'll hear the most compelling, provocative, and real conversations with industry leaders and innovators in tech, sports, and entertainment with our host and CEO of well-known PR firm, Axis Entertainment, Sarah Miller. Hi, this is Sarah Miller with the Axis Effect and CEO of the Axis Entertainment firm. I'm super excited to be here today on our show with Rob Patterson, a global hospitality leader from hotels, the castles, and beyond. <laughs> hey, Rob. <laughs> oh, thanks for coming Hi, how are you? <laughs> the ca- like, castles of the glamorous Castles, houses, <laughs> hotels. Oh, my God. Like, it was so, like, I know we were chatting earlier, but honestly, I don't even know where to start. You have such a badass background. Tell me about like, this. You, you've been in hospitality. Let me ask you a question first. I know you're from the UK. You just got to the stage, but in 2021, middle of pandemic, what made you move from the UK to the States mid-pandemic? Yeah, well, well, I'm I'm Australian uh, originally. And in in about 2008, I think it was a global financial crisis. I seem to like moving countries in in, in crises. But you were were in London though, right? I mean, you were... Pre-2008, I was in Australia. Gotcha. And then moved moved to the UK and uh, for the first time. And uh, it, it was middle of global financial crisis. It was not a good time to move, but hey, who likes who doesn't like who doesn't mind a challenge? You know, it's a yeah, bit right. of fun. <laughs> Adds a bit of spice to life. <laughs> so yeah, moved over there, spent ten years there, and then I was running a, a hotel company with brands from economy through to luxury in the COVID crisis, which was fun and challenging and interesting. Yeah. And we opened hospitals, we turned some of our hotels into hospitals, all sorts of things that were a lot of fun, but. My other half was over here in in the uh, in the US, and that was kind of challenging because Trump yeah. had shut the borders, and uh, so I couldn't come here. And well, she could go there, but she had to quarantine, and it got a little tricky. So we said, okay, listen, when all the hotels are reopened, I, I spoke with the chairman about it and said, when all the hotels are reopened and everyone's back in a good place, I'm going to make the switch over to the US. So that was what drove it. <laughs> Okay, let's all go on. So you, you hit a buzzword. Let's let's roll back. Let's talk about leadership here. You moved, you have been on the commercial side in the hotel industry forever. You started turning some of these hotels that know they were all shut down into hospitals. Yeah, and that that was a cool project. You know, that was it was kind of on a whim on a Sunday morning. The the health minister was on TV and he started talking about the potential to turn other businesses into bed space because they were going to run out of bed space. So yeah. my PR guy immediately got on the phone and said, let's let's offer the brand. So we put the brand up for offer, 30,000 rooms across the country, and every media outlet in the country picked it up. And, uh, and it sort of defined the next four months, five months at least, while the lockdown was in full swing. Every day was centered around turning our hotels into uh, to hospitals, which was a, a mammoth task. I just think that's amazing. I mean, and that's such a good, like, you know, you talk about random acts of kindness, especially during the pandemic. I mean, I know some of the big ships were converted into hospitals. It was so messy. But the fact that you guys did that, like, honestly, that's amazing. That's like, like I mean, that to me, being a PR that is so media worthy of a story. That's one of those feel good stories. That's not just drama, trauma, bullshit to get ratings. That say, hey, we've got your back. Everything out there sucks. We get it. It's scary. It's bad. But like, it's kind of like some of the hotels, like make Hilton your home, Holiday Inn, every stay is your home. I just feel like you guys are so in line with what you did in this campaign to like, hey, this is safe. This is home. We got you. Like all the hotels are turning the hospitals to accommodate. I mean, just like that's actually humongous. That's huge yeah. what you guys did. That's impressive. Yeah, it was an awesome. The first one that went, you know, we were a little bit nervous about how the staff would receive it. And even the local area, you know, there was houses that, that are around these hospitals that are kind of like, well, we don't want to have that near us. And yeah, it wasn't that way at all. The first ambulance that came in, the, the community lined the streets and welcomed them. The kids drew pictures and brought them to the hotel. Oh. It was a real community feel. And yeah. of course, you know, we didn't do it from a business perspective. It, it was a, a decision made on a split second. But it was uh, a humanitarian it, decision. It just gave you exposure that is it's it invaluable. Did. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the media lined the streets because we're the first one in the country to, to convert. And so it was a pretty special time. You know, politicians even 
politicians had to make do a lot to make that happen because we had to change the zoning of the building from yeah. being a, a hotel facility to a hospital facility, which means a huge amount of firework and perimeter work and all sorts of things. And the whole community just came together and and it made it happen in it happened in under 14 days. Wow. And this was in London, right? It was just outside of London, actually, about an hour outside of London, south of London. That's just amazing. I just feel like everybody, like it was community. Everybody had to have that community roll up your sleeves and jump in. It was such a scary time, but I, I love that story. Are they all back to hotels now or, or did the um, chain continue to do some humanitarian work? Some of them continued with things like there were some nasty situations where people had to be housed because of domestic violence and yeah. uh, homelessness and things like that. And that has continued, but the hospital side of things it pretty much dissipated after that first big round. And once the first round of the vaccine was available, it kind of dissipated um, and went back to being hotels. Can I ask which um, which hotel chain did that? That was Best Western. That was, oh, really? That yeah. was the Best Western. Yeah. Wow. I mean, yeah. global chain and that amazing. That's awesome. Yeah, it was Wait, and then you move, so then I know you've done like, village hotels you've done luxury stuff like what are you doing these days and you've done i know i love that you're doing exclusive castles and historic homes throughout london ireland on storied collection like what's going on like have you seen like has the industry gone better changed are you happy where it's moving in the right direction because i know it was kind of shaky for a while they shut down a lot of the Hotels, a lot of them never reopened room service, never reopened restaurants. There's a few that are still just kind of wonky. Where is the hospitality market right now overall? It's definitely, from a commercial point of view, it's recovered. You know, from a service point of view, it's been good and bad. You know, like some of the things that have happened, you know, like things like not cleaning the room every day and but that's a choice to- though. But that's a choice because I always get things, hey, if you want it, Keep your same towels. You use this plaque. We'll leave them. If you want us to skip a uh, yeah. day, just I mean, I mean, I do get that, but I think that that's up to the the guests. But at the same time, it's kind of good because it eases up the employment and the staff. Yeah, yeah. I, I think some people have done that practically, and some people have taken advantage of that. And uh-huh, even yeah. some of the breakfasts that are served, you know, the, before COVID, I feel like service standards were so much better than what they are now. But they're recovering. There's been a real challenge with labour, as you've just just said. So it's understandable. But uh, I think we've got a way to go to get back to where we were before in terms of proper hospitality, true, personable hospitality. I love that you said that because I just had this conversation because I've been traveling a lot. It's just a hospitality I figured it would have bounced back by now because hotels are getting more expensive. They're trying to make up for the past. But I feel like hospitality hasn't been what it used to and accustomed to pre-COVID. Just, I thought it would have bounced back. We've been in the clear for a year or two, but it hasn't bounced back yet. And I don't know if that's just, you know, this is a new normal way of life and they just cut corners because that's the way it is, or if it's actually going to change to get back to the way it was. It's hard to tell. Yeah, I think that there will be a shift towards going back to what it was, especially I think the next 12 months are going to be a little more challenging than they have been for the last two years. Elections. And that'll kind of force, I think, the hand of of operators to, you know, tidy up their act where they're still being a bit lazy or maybe I won't call it lazy because it's probably necessity with lack of staff. But, you know, I think some people are just enjoying the extra profits as well and not yeah, really I delivering mean, the service. I think that they people understand people aren't traveling as much they're not out there. I mean, they're now at home. People may have made a decision. This is a new world. It's, you know, now that they know they could, with Zoom and technology, overhead is lower. People could work from home. It's a win-win. People are actually more productive at home, working three days at home. Employers are more profitable because they're not paying for the overhead in these huge buildings that were always empty. I just feel like it is what it is. Like I have a few of my favorite, favorite hotels. And one of the ones that I'm so obsessed with this past year is the Pendry. Oh, yeah. Owns a Pendry. I think the Monarch's out of Europe. They own the Pendry. And like the service is, it's a smaller boutique. So they're able yeah. to really take care. And I love the boutique firms, but oh my God, like the, the staff, the service is impeccable. And the love fact that. That, and they're very, they're in LA. They're a small, you know, and, um, 
the monarch owns the montage, not the monarch. Sorry, I'm in British mode now. The monarch, the montage owns all the penderies. And I got to say, take the montage out of it. The Pendry in West Hollywood is my go-to when I'm there. It is such a good hotel from staff to cleanliness. I mean, there was nothing I could say bad about it. But then, you know, traveling post-pandemic, you saw, you saw where things were being cut and stuff. But there's very few hotels I've seen that actually are full-blown 24-7 service the way it used to be. And I love this behind the stories with these right now. And it's it's nice when you turn up and people remember your name and those real genuine personable touches, not the digital kind of, oh, you had a coffee here last time, I'll offer you a coffee again. It's that (laughs) true human connection. And I think that's the bit that's got to bounce back a little bit. Some people nailed it, but majority have I I love that. But when I was in um, Las Vegas uh, two weeks ago, I was at the um, Waldorf and it was all digital. There were Hilton and I which I didn't know Hilton bought water, but they did. But I was impressed, at least with the one in Vegas, because I didn't have to go to the desk. I'd have to see humans. I had the app downloaded. It has digital skin. Put your fingerprint on it. And then it scans it, opens all the elevators. You get close to your door, fingerprint scan, reactivate, and it opens your door. I have access to the whole hotel via digital. I love that. And the reason why, I mean, I knew that was coming because because we know, Produced the um and own um the Media Excellence Awards, largest mobile tech awards globally. It's our 16th year right now. Hilton, their mobile site, actually won two or three years of best mobile app, best hospitality app. But I've never really stayed at a Hilton until two weeks ago with the Waldorf. And I really got to see how that digital works on your mobile phone. It was so impressive. I just feel like not enough hotels are moving in that direction. But to your point. That means you don't have customer interaction. So, I, but I do think it's a brilliant idea towards seamless and easy and so turnkey. And I think that's where all the hospitality industry needs to start leaning more into technology than what they've been doing. Yeah, typically we're slow to slow to adopt technology, and I think it should be a choice if someone wants to cruise in, especially if you're on business and you just want yeah. to get to your room, then that's perfect. So I think yeah, it should be a, a choice that's offered. It's but you're right, we're slow to adopt. So a lot of these hotels in European, because I know you do a lot of consulting right now, are they are more hotels moving into the digital age using leaning into tech or are they all really standing their ground on one-on-one check-in and customer service? Yeah, there's some there's some dynamics at play here. Like a lot of the independents who have the ability to just change their technology, they will and they are in big numbers. And there's a lot of money that's flowed into new technology providers. The challenge is the brands because the big brands, because of their loyalty programs, will dictate to the owners which PMS they have to use, which property management system they have to use. And that sort of limits their ability to be with the latest and greatest. They'll typically have to be with the safest and largest rather than the latest and greatest. Yeah, I was at, what was it? It was the Wall Street Journal's Innovation of Future Innovation Show in May in New York, which is amazing. And Christmas set up the president um, CEO of Hilton yeah. was there speaking yeah. on the thing. And I mean, it, it was good because he was really talking about that next venture into embracing digital and technology, but he went backwards a little bit talking about customer service, room service, that like, he goes into every hotel, every room, the towels, the lights, accessibility. If you're, you know, he's like, when I'm at home, I'm bumping into walls all the time. There's, there's no light. So they put little running, you know, like really light, like like running lights very faint you know so when you're walking you don't bump into a wall right you know he's look he looks at what he needs at home to be comfortable as home and he looks at are these same things in our hotels when people are in our hotels it's like the comfort level of being home why to choose our hotels and he's starting to incorporate more of the like little night lights little things that automatically go on the bathroom the digital key that he's really adapting more of what he needs to be comfortable at home, he wants to adapt more into the hotels. And I thought that was a brilliant move of where he's going with this. Yeah, yeah, it's a positive direction. I think that the the big brands are headed in. Their, yeah. their challenge is technology because they they are so embedded and intertwined with legacy type technology partners that it makes it harder for them to move at the same speed. But yeah. uh, but it's good to hear them talking like that. 
Yeah. Okay. So you spent majority of your career with some fabulous hotel chains, but you said you're on the commercial side of it. What, tell me, like, yeah. like talking about, like, what did you do? Like, was it brand partnerships? Like, is it loyalty programs? I mean, what does what's the commercial side of the hotel business like? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I went to hospitality college and I went through operations, but I was just you know, in the right place at the right time when the internet sort of spawned and they were looking for somebody who was understand the operation but also understood the technology side of um, of pricing, of how, how rates got into travel agents' hands and how they got into the brochure and the whole world of distribution before the internet existed. And, and I, I knew both of those just by chance. And uh, so I got kind of got drafted into a, a project for uh, dynamic pricing, revenue management, when hotels went from having a fixed price that was billboarded outside or posted on the you know back of the reception desk to becoming fully dynamic and uh, and being online and transparent that was a huge shift and that's how i kind of uh, evolved from there I got involved in revenue management then went into marketing and sales and 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 went through that side of the business for probably 20 years in that side of the business oh, amazing what well, do you see a big difference between how the hotels are ran in London compared to here in the States? Not so much. I think now it's we live in such a global community and things that are hot in the US are very, very quickly hot in the UK and vice versa. So yeah. I think there's a very common way of operating now that probably didn't exist in the past. I mean, we used to go, I don't know about you, but if you, sometimes you go to a country and you go to and stay in a five-star hotel and you, you're like, this is a three-star hotel. It's not even a five-star hotel. It doesn't offer the same services that we have back in Australia or UK or whatever. I think that's kind of changing as the world's become more global and airlines have become so prolific and countries have become more accessible. And so I think that leveled the playing field a little bit. So I don't notice too much of a difference between US and, and UK other than the brand side, actually. that That is one side. US is so brand-driven yeah. and loyalty is such a huge thing. I think pro- proliferation of brand here is about 80%, 20% independent, 80% brand. And in the Europe and the UK, that's about 45% brand, 55% independent. Mm-hmm. So that's a big, that is one big difference. Well, I feel like that's the whole loyalty. I mean, you want, they want, I mean, I get the whole loyalty programs. I do get that whole thing. I mean, everybody is loyal to it. It's brand loyalty. People want to know the backstory to the story. Then they're more loyal. Like I read the backstory to um, one of the founders or owners of the Pendry. And he got yeah. probably like in his 40s, younger guy. He's done the most innovative, very innovative, aggressive in his thinking of what boutique hotels should be like, how they should be mm-hmm. ran. And I was so fascinated by his story. But it's like people are loyal to the brand when they know the story, to the backstory of behind the brand. That's where you have that that loyalty, that connection. Something is about whoever it was or whatever that backstory was to how that brand evolved and who's running it. There's always an emotional connection of some level, whether you had one, three or four humanitarian points to where they could connect with you. That's where the loyalty, that comfort level comes up. So I'm a huge, huge believer in the loyalty because remember, you know, like Hilton, Marriott, we're all getting points. The more you use yeah. your credit cards, the, like airlines, the more you stay there, the more points and perks you get. I do think that's a brilliant idea to keep brand loyalty. Yeah. Yeah. I, I call the points programs bribery programs. That, that, <laughs> it's, not true. it's not true loyalty. It's just that. I'm bribing you to stay back in my Please give me your money so I can give you something that doesn't hit my bottom line. Yeah. That's funny. <laughs> bribery. They're bribery yeah. points. They're not really loyalty points. I was really surprised that the Pendry and um, Montage doesn't have any loyalty programs, but I think the Montage not Australia. I, I think they're based out of London. Their corporate is out of the country. They're not based in the U.S. They don't do yeah. loyalty programs. I'm sorry, bribery programs. They, <laughs> they're, they're too good no, and too bougie. They don't need to bribe you. You should just be privileged to walk in our doors. Yeah, points programs. They're just not that big. In, in, in But anything, you know, like here, I've got my Walmart loyalty. I've got, I'm not sorry, Walmart. What's the one? Walgreens. Walgreens. Mm. So I always use Walgreens and not CVS. Whereas you just don't get that in in Europe and UK, it's um. Well, why do you think is it, is it more like behavioral? Because I mean, I always feel, I mean, it's my opinion. Um, people do have a lot much more class and sophistication in London. They clearly don't in the US. I mean, I okay, and I know it's going to sound shitty, how, but I just feel like there's so 
many people are just trash. They're just assholes. They're not proper. They're not educated. I just feel it's a culture of things. So whether you're educated or not, it's a proper culture, a way to do things in London. And I always feel like how, like you said, the bribery points and all the stuff we do here, that's not big there. I feel like everybody in the U.S., everybody expects something for nothing here. They expect something for something in exchange for their kindness or service where I feel, and I can't talk about Australia, but at least in um, the UK, a little bit more of a proper society when it comes to culture. And I wonder if maybe that's why that brand loyalty interaction is completely different between the US and London. Yeah, I I couldn't put my finger on it, but I think there's also regulations are a little bit tighter in Europe as well and what you can do with data and so if I earn loyalty points here, that you know I get, I can convert them to cash, and I don't pay tax on them. In Europe, if you earn loyalty point and you convert them to an Amex voucher or something like that, that's a fringe benefit, and you've got to pay a significant. You declare it and pay a significant yeah. tax against that as well. So there's tax reasons as well. Yeah, there's a lot drive. of reasons why things are different from here to there. Yeah. But I, I do agree because, like you know, that's a big perception is if it's a five star hotel here, it is usually a three star hotel there. But then again, in other parts of the world. To them, that may be a luxury. I, I just, yeah. I, I want to still get into bashing on Americans, but you're Australian, so it's okay. But like, it's just, I feel like, yeah, we end up with perception, but I know when we see a five-star hotel here or when you're traveling and it says five stars, I, I mean, people always look twice because five stars there may be a two or three star here. And if we are yeah. luxury travelers and we need to know whether certain things we want, you do have to do your research because a lot of the hotels there don't rank it on. I think there's different priorities. We what we say is five star here, which is very brand driven and very materialistic. Other parts of the world don't see it that way. They look at maybe different things that attribute to that three, four, five star. So I do know, let's like the Dorchester in London to Savoy. Some of them are true beautiful hotels, but I also feel like if in somebody else's country. Their water systems, the electricity, everything's yeah. different. It's never going to be what we perceive here as five stars because they just have they're they're built they're older older parts of the world that are built on different grids and stuff. I know when my first time to Europe when I was fifteen sixteen, <laughs> I did not realize what a converter was. Plugged in my hotel in Venice, blew out the entire floor. Oh. Couldn't figure it out. Oh, my family, my parents, my dad's like, what is going on? And like, I don't know why my parents just assumed it was a joke. Oh, Sarah may be using her blow dryer. I think they were just kidding, but I really was. And then I did it again and half the hotel blew up. Like, I just feel like we have to adapt to other cultures. And I know, you know, being global, being big in the hospitality industry, I think what people are missing in travel is you're in someone else's culture you have to adapt and accept their culture, mm-hmm. not walk in like an asshole, cocky American demanding stuff. And people always say in Paris, Americans are so rude, bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. And then when I've yeah. traveled around the world and I've seen how certain people act that are Americans, I'm like, yeah, we earn that reputation. You're in well, there. I, th- I think culture. the French probably pot call in the kettle black there because they can be the most arrogant people in, in the world, I think, <laughs> especially well, in Paris. Okay, but okay, if if you're if you're in a culture, okay, you've traveled. Yeah. If you're in a culture that's not your culture, I mean, you're, you're from Australia, so you probably blended in very well in London. Where an American executive moving into London to take a job is going to get so much backlash. They do not like Americans, especially in the business world. If you just move into a high role position because you're American, you're going to have a tough time. And I have friends who are British, and they're out here, and they're pretty clear. They won't last for three years. They'll probably like barely last for five. Very hard for Americans in the business setting to, because they're not part of that culture. There's a certain culture that you're brought up in and it's very hard to adapt to. And I feel when we travel, you kind of have to adapt and accept whether you like it or not. That's their culture. You can't, I can't be in your country and bitch and complain and be hockey or an asshole when I'm in Australia because Australians do it differently because that's your culture. That's a whole different country of lifestyle. And I kind of feel like this is what bothers me only because I have traveled around the world, been to South America, been to Europe, been to Russia, been everywhere. And I'm always like adapt, blend in, you know, because. It's a great educator, isn't it? It's a great leveler. 
that you don't really know. Like we all see and hear things on the news every day, but until you actually experience whether good, bad, or in different parts of the world, you have a whole different perspective of what's important and yeah, how people absolutely. are living. And then, you know, you guys got to kind of put that perspective that this is what all they know. This is what all I know. It's not right or wrong. It's just if I can't respect and understand that while I'm there or respect it and understand it when I get back, like I have a bigger problem, you know, if I have missing that chip that I have no sympathy or empathy for how other people live. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great, it's a great educator. Yeah. It's, it's it's interesting. So where so we have a good question. Let's chat about this because I've been dying to ask you this since we started. Storied collections. I know you're part yeah. owner. Tell me what that is before I go off on. Oh my god, I want a castle in Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's kind of like let's say Airbnb for castles, but the purpose of them is not the same as an Airbnb. People who rent a castle because all of them are exclusive use, so you don't just rent one bedroom; you rent the entire castle. So the clientele are made big company corporate retreats, uh, big weddings, entertainment industry, which you'll, you'll be very familiar with. A lot of filming, come and film a, a Mercedes Benz ad or something like that. Celebrities, so it's it's kind of a, a high end market. It's the average between sort of three thousand and anything up to fourteen thousand a night for but the that's whole the castle. Entire castle. Yeah, so you got like you know you might have 20, 20 rooms in in that castle as well. So it's, you know, when you work it out, it's not crazy, it's accessible and it makes it very accessible for, let's say a multi-generational family, you know, taking 10 rooms in a castle divided out by the, by the, by the families, it's actually reasonable and accessible. And that's what the point of it is, is to try and bring this amazing, incredible history. We just had one last month that's only ever been private, never been available to the public. And we just launched it in where? It's called Middleton Castle. It's in Norfolk in the UK. Beautiful. It's, it's got a moat all the way around it. And so it's, it's, a, um, it's, been, oh, it's been owned, obviously, by a family, and it's the first time it's been open to rent out the whole castle. Okay, now I have questions. How many bedrooms yeah. in the castle? I think that one has 14 from memory. Damn, it's a big one. So you've got four, You've got the entire castle with 14 bedrooms, and, of course, it comes with services as well. So you can have a Michelin chef come in and cook a meal or or prepare breakfast or whatever it might be. You can go, I don't know, clay pigeon shooting. You can tame an, an owl, whatever you want. <laughs> but it's not a true, like Airbnb. You could do VRB or Airbnb. You have the kitchen. You're on your own. Castles are different. It's like you just have a kitchen stocked full of stuff. You don't even know how to work a castle's kitchen because everything's a little bit, you know, reverse and backwards. I mean, do these castles, do they come with staff or is it optional to have staff there? almost always come with staff so uh there'll be cleaners and everything yeah yeah groundsmen groundsmen and women there'll be managers there'll be people to run events if you want to go and do falconry or some kind of corporate event all of that comes with the castle but it's very bespoke so you may say hey listen i'm coming with my family i don't really want anyone on site and you can do that that's okay you're probably going to have the grounds people and and a few people who have to be there but other than that you can have it entirely for yourself. And I guess that's the beauty of an exclusive use castle is that you can kind of be solo and on your own and the entire grounds if you want to be. That's insane. And, and it's so they range from like, what, three to 14,000 per night for a whole castle. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So between how, there, how, depending how, on the time of the year and yeah, that sort how, of thing. Wait, well, you guys, are you guys, um, you're in Ireland, you're in the UK. Is that the only place you guys are? Well, most of the castles. Right now, we are only in yeah, Ireland and, and UK, mostly Scotland and, and Ireland, but we're about to start moving into Western Europe as well. So we'll you know, consider things like France and uh, some beautiful castles in France, chateaus, Italy, even the Netherlands. So, yeah, we're, we're going to move into Western Europe very shortly. Very exciting. Wow. That's exciting. When did you, yeah. like, where did you pivot? Where throughout your hospitality career did you pivot to where you realized you wanted like to do something different you wanted to do this because you've been on the commercial side for a long time running these hotel chains like when did you decide that okay i'm going to take my leadership my strategic skills in hospitality and pivot over to my own thing when i moved to the u.s was really the catalyst for saying okay because i hold a british passport an australian passport but it's not easy to come across and uh and just find a job as a CEO with, yeah. without a visa. So 
it kind of forced me to rethink things and and figure out, which is kind of nice, you know. I guess when you get taken to the edge and you're like, what am I going to do? It forces you to say, well, actually, what do I want to do in my life? And I really, really like this. And you know, I wrote the book. That was where it kind of started. And then the book kind of led to one thing to another. And then, yeah, it kind of led into a, an academy for for leadership. And I speak a lot as well. I go around and, and speak on uh, yeah. sales events, corporate events on leadership. And and then the, the, the story thing kind of came along almost by chance as well. It was a, a friend who was, um, he actually got married in a castle and he's American. His wife is British, now wife. And he couldn't find a castle. He was former Airbnb. So he was like, hey, listen, I want to start a company for for people who want to get who want to hire out castles because it was really, really hard. There's a niche market yeah. here. So um, so that kind of that kind of grew legs from there. I've always talked to so I always joked around my like my parents sometimes with the family, my friends, just rent a castle. Go get a week or two yeah. and rent a castle and have a castle. Everybody's like, <laughs> okay, we thought you just go to Airbnb. Hey, here's what a castle is. Yeah, no, it is very tough to find it. And people, you know, it is drafty. You got to be prepared to live in a castle and everything. Yeah. Let me ask you a question. Like, you have a book. What is Flip and Decide, which is your book? Just came out recently, correct or no? September, September, last year, September 22. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, I went to Mexico and, and uh, just spent, a few months in Mexico, just sitting on the beach and writing the book, just the sole focus of writing the book. And uh, I really enjoyed the process. I never thought I'd ever write a book, to be honest. It wasn't something that I had on the bucket list, but I really enjoyed it. And I just chose a topic that is something that I've always found quite easy, decision-making. And in my career, I realized that a lot of, sometimes it frustrated me. I'm like, why can't you just make a decision? And I realized that some people (laughs) struggle with that. So yeah, I decided to um, interview a bunch of uh, experts in the field, really, just to find out what is it that some people can make decisions quickly and easily and other people really struggle with it, indecision. So I interviewed neuroscientists, psychologists and uh, behavioral psychologists, relationship psychologists, all sorts of different experts in the field to to write the book. Is there anything that like, where was your like defining moment where you, did you just decide to write a book based on your experience or did you have something where you decided that, you know what, somebody's got to like step up, have a voice and clarify how to make these decisions. Was there a pivotal moment that changed why you wrote this book? I had a lot of time in my hands. That was the first <laughs> thing. And I was like, Don't oh, go to Mexico. We have something to do. I don't that. know what I want to do yet. So, and Mexico was open. Like this was, you got to remember, this was like uh, late 2021. And a lot of places weren't open yeah. still. The, the lockdowns were still happening. And I was like, well, you know what? Mexico has stayed open the whole time. They have no plans of locking down. I'm going to go there. But the book was more about I wanted to figure out what I wanted to do over the yeah. next 12, three, four years, five years, what I was doing, what I'm doing now. What I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And that was that was really the catalyst for writing the book. It was, okay, well, let's let's write a book. <laughs> and in the meantime, let's figure it out along the way. So that's um it wasn't a bright idea that went, oh, I need to tell the world this. <laughs> it was a topic that I thought, you know what, this is a topic I'm interested in. I'm gonna find out a little bit more about it, research it, write the book, and hopefully along the way it'll kind of light the path for what I want to do in the future. Was well, is it, and is it, it did. Yeah, the book might be like more from a leadership standpoint, or is it really like for everybody? It's more for C-level people because I what I hate is when people have everything in front of them, they can't make a decision. And I'm like, make a decision, stick with it, and just move right. forward. I mean, get better and different, just own your leadership. We're all about owning your leadership and just move forward, making the best of it. But I feel like a lot of people are very indecisive, and I feel like people are indecisive based on fear of the unknown. And I feel like that's the biggest yeah. reason why people can't make decisions. Yeah, there's a, it's a lot going on in the brain that causes indecision. But ultimately, you're right, it comes back to fear and it, it, you know, and confidence as well. And there's so many things that you can do to, to build that. You know, the most frustrating thing you hear is, I don't know if you've, you've probably heard someone say, oh, you're just like your grandmother or you're just like your mm-hmm. auntie. And you almost ingrain that into our minds that, oh, I'm just like that person. I must be that person. Yeah. And that's just not true. And science has now proven over and over again that you can change. And that's the premise of this book is that it doesn't matter how indecisive you are today, there are things you can do, practical, logical, tangible steps you can take to overcome that and change. That's really the essence of the book. I, I need to read the book. That's so funny because I always <laughs> feel and believe that you're always defined 
you're not defined by your past. You're defined by your present and everything. Yeah, I know so absolutely. many people say, well, because I had this past, because this, because that, because this, whether it's work, person, whatever, that's therefore I am what I am, who I am, how I do what I do today. And I don't think that's, I mean, you can't judge somebody today for something 20 years ago, last time you interacted with them. People change, people evolve. I mean, some people are just assholes regardless. But for the most yeah. part, I mean, uh, you can't let your past define who you are, who your future is. You've got to stand up, figure it out, find the success in all those failures and be a better person. If somebody doesn't accept it, doesn't respect it, uh, I mean, you, they're, they don't, they're not worthy to be in your life. I mean, like I'm all about yeah. like define who you are today, who you want to be in the future. And I hate when people define their decisions or how they act because of something in their past that that's not yeah. like that's not mature that's not being an adult that's making yeah. mistakes and making an excuse to not be a good person oh it's therefore because they did this therefore i'm owed this so i could be this today and like i have such levels of disrespect for people like that because that's just like that's just being a coward that's not really being a true authentic individual you know yeah, yeah, it's it's an excuse, isn't it? And, and your next decision is really what what defines you, and that that's kind of cool because when you break it down to that and say, well, it's it, no matter what's happened to me, no matter how maybe I've been abused, maybe whatever happened to you in your life doesn't matter. The next decision is all that matters. Just the next one decision, and then yeah. the decision after that, and that's kind of empowering in itself. So yeah, that's that's the premise of the book is, and actually the flip bit is uh, is funny enough. In my life, I've, so many times I've come to a point where I can't break two options. I'll have two two decisions, uh, one decision to make, and two uh, two outcomes, and I just flip a coin, and and it's worked for me for many years. And and it turns out that what the psychologist that I spoke to told me is that it's a form of metacognition. So what happens is that you you trick your mind by flipping the coin. You almost step away from the decision yourself and allow that decision to be made by the coin. If you balance it up in your mind, it's 50, 50% on one side and 50% on the other. Actually, at that point, it doesn't matter which way you go. It more matters that you take a decision and go. So that's what the flip of coin does. It says, okay, well, just let's keep moving forward no matter what it is. And with in today's era, it's not about being measured as such anymore. I mean, I almost say that measured leadership is a little bit dated. And today is about action because you have so much information at your fingertips. Very few decisions are terminal for a company. And as you gather data, you pivot, you adjust. So, and because that data is so quickly, readily available, you can't sit and wait for all the information to come to you. Actually, it'll just keep evolving. This world's moving so quick that if you stop and wait now, which is kind of the, I guess, the essence of measured, you're probably going to let, get left behind. I think the yeah. most effective way is just to keep moving forward. I always say, like, I hate when people, like, like they circle. I always say they they circle, but they don't land. Like, and I sometimes, yeah. like, I, I'm guilty because, like, sometimes if I have two decisions, I'll play the what if. Well, what if this? What if that? What if this? Yeah. But sometimes I have to talk it out until, like, I'm exhausted from figuring out we're just, aha, like that aha moment. Yeah. But, you know, I feel like things happen for a reason. So if I make a decision to go right, I'm going to have other opportunities that takes me here or there or there because things happen for a reason. If I went left, then I have other opportunities I may have missed, but I feel like you have a path you take and you make your decisions. You know, nothing's set in stone, but I feel like things happen for, there's a reason why you chose the path or made the decision you made. And it could be flipping a coin. It could be instinct, but you yep. go in the direction you go and it may be good, maybe bad, but I always feel like there's never a failure in a in a decision. There's bad decisions, but there's never failures. There's always finding successes and failures. Because if I make a bad decision, okay, well, what did I learn from it? What came out of it? And then I was at that position to deal with that trip, you know, tripped over something, yeah. failure that actually gave me an idea to go another direction to do better or at a position where somebody came to me. So I always feel like you should always find your successes and failures but it's all about making tight decisions. And it doesn't matter if my decision was good or bad as a leader. We all make easy decisions. It's easy to make a decision as a CEO. We make them all day long. It's making the hard decisions that I feel yeah. defines a good CEO's characters, how you gracefully handle a bad decision 
makes you a tremendous leader moving forward to make better decisions down the road. As long as you make the decision, your decisiveness, I think I'd have more respect if you made a decision, may not have been the best one, but you stuck to your guns, made a decision, figured out how to pivot. I think being that dis- that decisiveness earns more yeah. of my respect than somebody who's circling, doesn't land, or they keep changing their mind based on who they're talking to for that feel good, yeah. who likes me today or not tomorrow, but you're only as good as you were yesterday's. So just make the decision and move forward. Because I respect people who fail. I respect CEOs who made bad decisions, who failed, but I re- so much respect of how they had the class and grace to pick themselves back up, handle it, to move forward to better. That to me makes yeah. it to find a good leader. Yeah, absolutely. One of the stories I say in there is about Amazon, actually. Do you remember they had a phone? Amazon has a phone. Amazon. They had one at one stage. They came out with the Amazon phone and they were trying to take on Apple and, and <laughs> I'm Samsung. I'm like, wait, they had a phone. Wait, they had a phone. Wait, I think, okay, vaguely, vaguely, I think I remember that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, well, it didn't work out, right? I went to a lunch. This is how I got this story. And the guy who was the country manager for the UK got up at the lunch and told the story. And he's like, um, he was leading that team. And he said, at one point, we realized this wasn't going to work and we weren't going to compete and we were bleeding money. We made the decision to go for it. That was our decision. And at the end of that decision, we realized it was the end. We quietly picked that project up, we shelved it, and we moved on to the next project. And at the same time, in the media, because Amazon was a big company at that time already, the media were like circling like sharks on this. Oh, this is the end of Amazon. This team needs to go. This is doomsday, you know, like they've just failed to take on Apple and and look where they are now. That's the end of Amazon. That same team who shelved that project quietly, didn't read any of the newspapers, just went on to the next project. The next project was the uh, Amazon Alexa. See, the same people who made that same mistake. So you've got to look at it and say, well, innovation involves mistakes. If you're not pushing it to the boundaries, you're not innovating. Yeah, I I love that mistakes and failures like you, you you pull something out it's kind of like you always rise out of the ashes with something better than you did when you went down like yeah. so i created you know the nonprofit world health initiatives i told you about you know universal healthcare, yeah. and we had a donor main donor um it was all bitcoin and i just think the bitcoin thing like bitcoin crypto i think is scammy that is batshit crazy he's a bitcoin purist billionaire but yeah. doesn't have the business <laughs> sense and he you know, gave us our initial fund to get this. And it's a lot of, lot of money in this first startup. We didn't need most of it, but somebody kind of pitched it. Whatever, everybody makes mistakes. If you don't really know how to pitch money, you don't know when and where it is what it is for various reasons. But then the donor backed out the last minute and I was super, super pissed because I had to make a decision. What do we do with all yeah. this money? How do we help the people that's not sustainable? So then I just, you know, made a decision, just went, okay, just go in this direction. That's it. But then I look back and I realized this was like literally a few weeks ago, this whole thing happened. So we're now going to go apply for grants. But my theory is, okay, I made a decision. It may not have been a good one, but because it got screwed up, because it went south, because all reasons why this guy was just a whack job and didn't understand what was going on we do have the monies, you know, that we're growing because Bitcoin keeps going up to for a sustainable program in a third world country for a year, year and a half. And so I realized yeah. okay, this is not a bad thing that he didn't continue to fund for the next year and a half. Like he promised, like he should have, he backed at the last minute and I was really yeah. mad, but I'm thinking, wait, this isn't the end of the world. This failure is a good thing because we now have this chunk of change a good amount of money that we could still go save a community, a village, another country, do what we want to, to show progress, success, trajectory, to get the grants and loans. And we're not handcuffed to one person who wants everything to be done in Bitcoin. So if you're talking about making a split decision, make a decision to make a bad outcome better, nine out of 10 times, that outcome is always going to be better. And I made a decision. That must be so rewarding. It is. It, I mean, it's, it's kind of such a weird thing because it just literally, literally happened. And we just got um, the IRS notification saying we're an official legal 503C as That's of today. Congratulations. We in donations. But it's interesting because I'm in this, I, I was like, holy shit, I made a decision, pivoted on, you know, that's going to affect a lot of people. But I made a decision based out of a bad situation that actually ended up being 10 billion times better long term. And I just feel yeah. like that comes down to you have to own your leadership. You make a decision, yeah. 
find a better decision, come out ahead. How you come out ahead to me is good leadership. Whether good, bad, and difference is how you pick yourself back up and figure it out. Well, I just got lucky. We had a phenomenal outcome regardless. But, it, you know, it, you got to make decisions in life. Yeah. Yeah. That's the pr- premise of the book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think we make these decisions throughout life by just everyday failures. You know, yeah, totally. And it's hard. Totally. It's, just, it's just hard. But I, I, I still love that you have this book out. I think I need to get this book. Now, where can people find this book? It's only um, it's flip on the side, only on Amazon, yeah. correct? on amazon it's in um barnes and noble it's in a lot of the bookstores as well so yeah it's available online or in the bookstores it's uh, it was a lot of fun i enjoyed it awesome so okay so what's next what's next what's our decision what's next for you rob for every make a decision where are we going with like you have the book you have your consulting you have a tremendous background in hospitality like where's the next step for you yeah i'm actually launching a new company in january nice. <laughs> back in the hotel world so um yeah still in the hotel space and you know in the us alone there's like 800 million rooms a year that go empty in hotels and i want to tackle that space so uh that's that's where i'm headed in january you're not going to you can't talk about it can you oh i can talk about it oh yeah sure? yeah if you're like on any but okay <laughs> tell me tell us Tell me what this company does and what it's about and what it does. It's called No Room Wasted. The idea is that taking all these rooms, as revenue management professionals, that was my background, as we spoke about before, we forecast when those rooms are going to happen. So we know when we're going to have empty rooms. The reality in a hotel is we have very high fixed costs. So ground rents, the general manager, the lifts, the electricity, you've got to have all that on and all that paid for, irrespective if you sell 80 rooms or 85 rooms in a 100-bedroom hotel. The fixed costs are very high and that doesn't make a difference. The variable costs of selling a room are really the cleaning costs and, you know, the linen and the the time for the maid to go and clean the room and maybe some of the um, amenities in the room like the soaps and the toilet paper and things like that. Very low variable costs. So the reality is if a hotel forecasts 80 rooms to sell and they've got 20 empty, they could sell those 20 rooms for $15, $20 so and still profit. be a small profit. Yeah. Yeah. So they, the idea is that we take those rooms that we know are forecasted to be empty and, and revenue management systems are getting much more accurate in their forecasts. And we go to businesses and we use those rooms as vouchers to businesses. So businesses like Lowe's or Home Depot or Verizon or anything with like a value product of around $1,000 and they'll buy those vouchers as free night vouchers in bulk or buy those empty rooms in bulk and then say to the customer, hey, listen, buy a fridge from Lowe's and you'll get a free night in a four-star hotel or a free hotel break in a resort loyalty. or whatever it might be. You're, you're, you're yeah. brand to brand loyalty. Why not make that available for consumers? Because there's that app out called Hotel Hotels. It's an app where you go on any given time and all the room inventory that hasn't sold that night or the next night because they know you could get for much cheaper than, you know, just going to Expedia online directly a week or two prior. Why? And I love the app. I've used it a few times. Why not take that and make that available and GA to the consumers? There's only one app out there that does that. And they're not the best app on the UI side. Hotels just don't want to do that because what it does is it, it makes their forecasting impossible. Uh, it encourages people to not book early and to wait until later and book cheap. So they just don't want to do that. They want to encourage people to book early. So everything around pricing models today is about setting your best price up six months out. And then as it gets closer, the price will actually get higher, which encourages consumers to book early, which makes the business more forecastable. They can roster the right amount, row to the right amount of maids on, receptionists, whatever it might be. Uh, so the business is much more efficient if it can predict. I, I think everybody thinks that about the airlines. Well, if I make something three months early and I wait to the last minute, it's going to be more expensive. But then we're finding out, at least with airlines, if I book it now in three months, it's going to be high. If I wait as I get closer to the window where it's actually cheaper, but then it goes up again. I, I, I know there's an algorithm to this that I just don't understand. But with hotels, they do have to lower it for like Expedia, Hotels.com, or are those rates are they that like are they are they truly six months out forecasted? And that's why we have the race. Because if I look online at hotels.com and I look for a hotel, 
Yeah. I always, always, and I always, I always look at the website of the hotel directly. And then I look at yeah. hotels.com and sometimes there's no difference. So it's like, what's the point? Yeah. Sometimes it's like maybe a $25 variant if you book it now, but I'm starting to find out. And it's just my travels that if well, that's how I do it, the hotel cost directly is almost the same amount as hotels.com. So why would I go to hotels.com or Expedia? Because they have the worst rules when it comes to changes and cancellations. So I'd rather go to the hotel directly because I know if I have to cancel 48 hours or there's a change, they're more likely to work with me where these third-party travel sites are more expensive to get that full refundable so they make their money. So I'm finding out that ExpediaHotels.com's perception for people is not cheaper than going to the hotel directly and finding out. Yeah, yeah. The hotels do a lot of work to try to manage that as well to make sure that that it's hard to manage. It's like a game of whack-a-mole because yeah. the the third parties like Expedia and Hotels and Priceline and Booking.com, they play a lot of very clever games and they've got a lot of money and they've got a lot of resource to do that. So it's very hard for a hotel to keep it, but they hotels do a lot of work of making sure that the brand site is either the best, equal to the best or better. And certainly, as you say, I mean, they'll definitely give you more flexibility on cancellations and modifications direct than you'll yeah. ever get at an OTA. Yeah, right. it was so good talking. I know we're running out of time and I know you've got to run. Okay, so the book is available, Flip and Decide, right now. It's on Amazon, it's in bookstores. Rob Patterson, Rob, where can people find you directly if they have any questions on anything? Where's a good place to reach you? Yeah, no, LinkedIn's the, the platform I'm most act, active on. And, and I've got a website as well, the, the Rob Patterson, which is my speaking website. But yeah, reach out on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm weirdly very accessible and I, I love to chat. So um, yeah, feel free to reach out. Yeah, this is amazing. I so love to have, thank you so much for coming on the show. Like I have, I have so much to chat with you about and, but congratulations with the new company. That's amazing. Thank um, you. So I definitely want to stay in touch with you, catch up on that. And you. Yeah. Congratulations going to get, to yours as well. Definitely going to get the book. So I'm super excited, Ron, but once you get right with the new company, I definitely want to have you back on and talk about that because you are truly back on the commercial side with that brand loyalty. And I think we need to talk about brand loyalty once you get the new company set up and launched. It'd be tremendous. Love that. Sounds good. Awesome. It was, so good. it was so good having you on, Rob. Uh, this is Sarah Mill with the Axis Effect with Rob Patterson. And we'll see everybody again next week. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Axis Effect podcast. If you don't want to miss an episode or download past episodes, be sure to subscribe to the Axis Effect podcast on your favorite podcast provider. To learn more about the podcast or our guests, please visit theaxiseffect.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.